Amen. We long to see thy churches filled. We long to see thousands, millions come to faith in Christ. But even as we sing those words, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you've been involved in evangelism and discipleship in sharing the gospel with coworkers, neighbors, friends, family, you know that there's a very real sense where it feels like though we long to see this happen, it doesn't seem like we can do anything about it. Doesn't seem like our evangelism is fruitful. It doesn't seem like our discipleship is effective. If you feel that way, number one, you're not alone. And number two, I'm really glad you're here this morning. We were able to look at our little prayer, praise, and pie night on Thanksgiving Eve, which is a special time together in the Word of God. We were able to look through what Paul was thankful for. We traced his usage of that word, Eucharisteo, of I give thanks to God for, and we followed how he used that in all of his epistles to see what he was thankful for. There's another word that he used for thanksgiving. It's the word charis, uh, grace. If it's given to somebody as the object, you are given grace. But if it's given by somebody in praise, it's gratefulness, it's uh, thanksgiving. And so there are many usages of that word by the Apostle Paul. And one of my favorite usages is in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 and 58, where he says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he says, because of that, therefore, we can continue in our labor, in our striving knowing, he says, that our labor is not in vain. Our work is not in vain. I don't know if you felt that way before, where your work is in vain, where you feel like, what am I even doing? Why am I even here? We were helping uh, our brother Marty move uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, Blake Whitaker was on one side of this big piece of furniture, and JJ was on the other side, and I was in the middle, and it was one of those moments, I'm sure you felt it before, where you're helping somebody move, where you're in the middle, and you're kind of holding it, but you know, it's really awkward. They've got the brunt of the work, and as I'm going, I kind of go, you know, how much am I actually doing here? And I, I just kind of hold a finger to it, and then I'm just kind of like, I'm done. I'm not doing anything. I'm not a part of this. I'm not helping in any way, shape, or form. That's often how, if we are honest and transparent with one another about how we feel in evangelism and discipleship, that's often how we feel. Like, am I even doing anything? Am I effective? Is anything even working? Is anything even being accomplished? And Jesus this morning would tell you, yes and amen. Something is absolutely being accomplished. And this morning we get to see two shocking realities of what is being accomplished in the kingdom of God. As Jesus continues in his parables in the gospel of Mark, we see two shocking realities of the kingdom of God. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 4, and we will read in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. Let's read these verses together. Jesus was saying... The kingdom of God is like a man 
who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and he gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. This is the word of God. Let's ask his blessing on our time as we give careful attention to it together. Father, we come before you and we admit that we stare inward far too often. We look at ourselves far too often. We look at ourselves in the equation of evangelism and discipleship far too often. And we get discouraged and we get let down. We ask questions. We begin to doubt. We wonder, is anything even taking place? Is anything even being accomplished? Is anything working? So Father, I pray this morning that you, by your word, would teach us and remind us and encourage us and comfort us with the reality of how the kingdom grows. That we would see very clearly and very correctly what our responsibility is in the growth of the kingdom. And we would see what our responsibility is not. God, I pray that you would grow our faith in you. We believe, but help our unbelief. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes now to behold wonderful things from your law, that we would see clearly what Christ is teaching, and that we would gladly and joyfully submit to him. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Two shocking, surprising realities of the kingdom in these two parables that Jesus gives to us. Number one, it is surprising how the kingdom grows. It is surprising how the kingdom grows. This is verses 26 through 29. In verse 26, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. So we're back to the sower, the seed, the soil, where we started in chapter four, the beginning of all of these parables. We're going back to this, uh, the analogy of looking at a farmer, looking at scattering the seed on the soil. And it also seems like we're going back to the whole crowd. Jesus had been explaining the sower and the seed parable to just his disciples. But now it seems like he's speaking again to the entirety of the crowds, including Pharisees, Sadducees, and others who didn't even really care to be there, did not believe that he was the Messiah. And so he's speaking in parables again with no explanation. It's a simple story. Remember, we define parables as earthly stories thrown alongside a spiritual reality for the purpose of concealing truth from those who don't want to believe and revealing truth to those who do. If you remember in verse 21, it says that Jesus was saying to them, 
to the disciples and those who were pressing in to hear and to understand. But in verse 26, it just says he was saying no more to them. He's just saying to everybody. So we're back to most likely, we're back to the whole crowd. And he's going to give a simple parable. And this parable in verses 26 through 29 is only found in the gospel of Mark. It's not found in any of the other gospels. One of the keys to understanding parables is to look at what's being emphasized and maybe being emphasized more than usual. And we can see that in this parable. What is being emphasized in this parable is it seems like the seed is growing all by itself. In verse 27, the farmer who throws the seed out goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed has sprouted, it's grown And how, he himself doesn't even know. He went to sleep, he's awake, and it's growing. And then verse 28, the soil produces crops by itself. So that's the emphasis here. The soil and the seed are doing work that the farmer doesn't even know about. It's happening automatically. That's literally the word in Greek for by itself. That word in Greek is automates. It's automatically. It grows by itself. And it's actually put at the very beginning of verse 28 in the original language. So it's emphasized automatically the soil produces crops. The whole point of what Jesus is saying here is the seed and the soil do work that the farmer knows nothing about. The germinating power to grow is in the seed and not in the farmer. Jesus is saying that growth comes not by the hard work or ingenuity of the farmer, but by the power of the seed. And this would have been shocking to the disciples. If you were to ask the disciples, how is the kingdom going to come? What is Messiah going to do? And what are you going to do as his followers to bring about the kingdom? What would their answer be? Well, we watch him teach. He gains a following. We get a big fan base. We instruct that fan base, we get the crowd armed and ready, and then we go and attack Rome. We bring the kingdom. We bring it. It's on our shoulders whether or not this thing happens. So for them, if you were to ask, how do you bring the kingdom? It's their doing. But Jesus shockingly tells them, actually, you can't build it. You can receive the kingdom, but you can't bring it, you can't build it, and you cannot make it happen. It happens automatically. So what do we do? What's our part in it? Our part is to throw the seed, to sow the word. But our part is not to build the kingdom, to make it grow. Our part is simply to scatter the seed. There's three main points of exhortation that come from these two parables. So as we go through the two shocking realities, I want to give you three points of application, exhortation, three things that we can take away from this text, from these two parables. Number one, point of application that's very clear in this section is we must trust the work of the word. Trust in the work of of the word. If we're going to understand this parable rightly, we understand that it's the word doing the work to grow the kingdom, not us. And so we need to submit to that reality and trust in the work of the word. The word is enough. Jesus could not have stated more clearly our relative irrelevance compared with the word of God. We are not irrelevant, but relative to the word, we don't do anything. 
the farmer sleeps. He just goes to bed. Now, don't abuse this. Don't become lazy. Don't say, well, now I don't need to share the gospel at all. No, no, no. 2 Timothy 2, be a hardworking farmer, but don't trust in your hardworking efforts. Psalm 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. So we work, we labor, but we don't labor and trust our own efforts to build the kingdom. We trust God to do that work. God has to do the work or else our labor is in vain. We cannot make salvation happen in someone's heart. We just scatter the seed. We throw the seed. We go to bed. We're not responsible for what they do with it. That's on them, and that's with God. We just plant, and we go to sleep. Now, again, don't abuse it. I I would encourage you, don't go to sleep unless you've sown. Do the hard work. But once you've sown, rest in God's sovereignty. Rest in God doing the work. And God has promised to do the work. Turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll turn around to a couple passages here so that you can see this reality all over the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. Remember, there was a, there was a fight. There was division in the, the church in Corinth. And the division was over, I'm a follower of Apollos. No, I'm a follower of Cephas. No, I'm a follower of Paul. I was baptized by Apollos. Well, they're they're pitting each other against each other. And so Paul says, verse 4, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. When one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? We're just servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. And then listen to what he says. I planted, I scattered the seed. Apollos watered, he was a good farmer. But God caused the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Again, we have a responsibility, but in comparison to the word, we are nothing. God causes the growth. It's God who causes the growth. Turn over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, the beginning of John's gospel. John wants to make it very clear that it's not according to the will of man that we are saved. In John chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, John says, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, that's Jesus, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, To them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood. So your entrance into the kingdom, into the family of God, is not based off of your biology, based off of your heritage, based off of your ethnicity, based off of your genealogy. It's not of your blood. It's not of the will of the flesh. It's not of your abilities because of the the will of your flesh to be able to accomplish certain things, to be able to perform in a certain way? No. And it's not according to the will of man. It's not according to your desire. It's not according to your ability to conjure up a desire to follow. No, it's God. 
It's God who's going to do that work. And then just a few chapters later, you remember uh, Jesus with Nicodemus. You must be born again. What is Jesus trying to say when he tells Nicodemus to get into the kingdom of God? You must be born again. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. If you were to ask Pharisees, how do you get into the kingdom? Pharisees would say, you have to be Jewish. You have to be a keeper of the law. You, you get into the kingdom by who you are and by your good works. And Jesus says, actually, no, you must be born Again, you can't get into the kingdom unless you're born again. And the analogy he's using, he's asking Nicodemus, what did you do to contribute to your physical birth? Did you choose who your parents would be? Did you choose when you would be born? Did you choose where you would be born? Did you do anything to bring about your physical birth? The answer is no. And Jesus says the same is true with your spiritual birth. You don't contribute anything. You can't contribute anything because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And so if you and I think as we are evangelizing, if I just package the gospel in a right way, I will make them believe. I will get them saved. Then we're going to be discouraged. We're going to be let down because our cleverness will never be the source of anyone's conversion. Never. If salvation, the, the eternal salvation of souls depended on me, I don't think I'd ever be able to sleep at night. I don't think I would ever be able to sleep peacefully at night. But the farmer sows the seed, goes to bed. Why? He's done his job. And now he gives it to the person, will you receive? And he gives it to God, will you work? It's up to that. It's up to those people. It's up to that reality. It's not up to me. If we do think that their response is dependent on us, then we're going to be discouraged if they don't believe. We're going to be maybe neurotic in the way that we interact with them. We're going to be manipulative. We'll totally change the methods that we use in order to produce the results that we desire. This is what happened years ago in what was known as the church growth movement. We want people say, we long, just like we sang, we long to see your churches filled. And if people aren't coming to the church, to believe in Christ and to follow him, then let's change the methods. Let's change the message. Let's change that so that we get people to come. And so the church growth movement, the seeker sensitive movement said, let's try and find a way to fill our churches with as many people as possible. And it's on us to make conversion happen. Of course, this is going to lead to a kind of adjusting of the gospel because somehow we are now responsible for overcoming the sinner's resistance to the gospel. And so we package the gospel in some less resistible way. If we change the results, or if we want to change the results, we just change the methods. And that's why Jesus says to his disciples, hey, we're starting small and people aren't going to listen. But it's not dependent on you. Your job is just to scatter the seed and then trust God to do the work he's going to do and pray that they would have the soil that would receive and bear fruit. It's God who starts the work, right? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who began the good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it. He's the one who started it. He's the one who's going to finish it. So we need to trust in the work of the word in our evangelism, in our discipleship, in sharing our faith, in counseling people, trust the work of the word. Just give them the word. Be completely dependent on God doing the work. We cannot manufacture work in the lives of the people that we love. We need to understand our limitations. We need to glory in our limitations. If we glory in our limitations, that will place us 
in an amazing spot where we can see God's glory on display. And we just get to say, hey, use me however you want. I want to be faithful to scatter the seed. I love the way Martin Luther said it. He was asked when looking back at the Reformation, looking back at what he had begun. He said, he was asked, how did you start all this? What do you think of all this? This is amazing. Look at what you've done. And he, similar to Paul, said, what is Luther? The teaching's not mine. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. I didn't do it. God did it. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then he says this, similar to our passage this morning. While I slept or while I drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. And then he says this, I did nothing. The word did everything. Now we look and we go, <laughs> Martin Luther did a lot. He wrote hymns. He evangelized. He wrote translations of the Bible in the common language. He wrote commentaries. He wrote sermons. He preached. He did a lot. And he said, I did nothing. I was just faithful to present the message of the gospel, but I didn't transform lives. God's word transformed lives. So number one, if we're going to understand the application of what Jesus is teaching us and the shocking reality of how the kingdom grows, we need number one, to trust in the work of the word. Number two, we need to be humbly and confidently faithful in sowing the seed. We need to be humbly and confidently faithful in sowing the seed. Trust in the work of the word and then sow the seed. Do it with humility. You have no ability on your own to change somebody's heart. So be humble. But be confident because you're sowing something that can. You can't make anybody change, but you're sowing something that can. You can write down Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 11. This is the passage where God says, My word will not return void. It will accomplish that which it was sent to accomplish. The word of God is always doing something. This is why when we gather, we always talk about the word. We're always talking about it. We're always sharing it. We're always speaking it. We're always singing it. It permeates everything that we do. Because when the word is unleashed in God's people, it will do something. It accomplishes something. Maybe you don't remember the points of the sermon from last week. That's okay. I don't either. Maybe you don't remember the outline or the illustrations. That's fine. As long as you are receiving with meekness the word implanted in you, like James 1 says, then you're being nourished by Christ and something is happening. We talk a lot at our church about sermons or meals. You don't remember uh, the meal that you had five weeks ago on Wednesday night, but that meal kept you alive. It nourished you. So too, you might not even remember the sermon from last Sunday, but it nourished you because it's God's word doing something. Same is true for discipleship and evangelism. You might feel like, man, I am doing nothing. I am not accomplishing anything. No one is listening. Nothing is effective in the way I'm sharing. And this passage is telling us, no, 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 just keep throwing the seed out. It's like Dory in Finding Nemo. You guys remember her little song, right? Just keep swimming. I have children, sorry. Um, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. Our song as believers should be just keep sowing, just keep sowing, just keep sowing. Don't stop because something's happening. You just don't know what it is. Just keep sowing. 
You look around, you go, man, I have been sowing for decades and it seems like nothing's happening. And I would say, just wait. One day you're going to look and you're going to see a little shoot where there was hard, stony ground. You're going to see something growing and you're going to say, that wasn't there yesterday. When you think about trying to break through the defenses of a heavily guarded heart, Think about human hearts that do not want to submit themselves to the Lord. They're, they're like hearts that are just encased with four foot thick concrete walls. And God's saying, take a little seed and throw it at that wall. And you're like, this isn't going to do anything. I'm just throwing that seed at the wall. And it's just bink, right off. I'm throwing it. Nothing's getting through. And what Jesus is saying is actually that seed isn't just a little tiny seed. It's like a grenade. It's a hand grenade that what you're doing every time you throw that seed, it's laying there at the foot of that heart and it's starting to blow up those concrete walls. God is doing something. So don't stop sowing. Evangelize and disciple with humility and confidence. The things that we do, they might seem completely insignificant to us but they have eternal significance as God uses them to build his kingdom. We often don't know what God does with our service, with our evangelism, with our sowing. We often don't know. We plant and we go to bed and God takes it and he does miraculous things with it. And sometimes we don't even know. Often we don't even know. So can I encourage you? Just forget about trying to see the fruit of your service immediately. Forget about trying to see it immediately. It doesn't matter if you ever even see it at all. Just throw the seed out and let God do what he wants to do with it. I love this text because every year pastors, thousands of pastors leave the ministry. Now there's a lot of reasons why they would leave, but I think most leave because they simply feel like they're spinning their wheels and nothing is happening. And they need this parable to know that their toil and their labor is not in vain. If they're throwing the seed out, God's gonna do something with it. And so I wonder if you feel this way. This parable is not just for pastors. This parable is for anyone involved in any form of ministry where you're evangelizing or you're discipling, where you're counseling, where you're sowing the word and you feel like nothing is working. Maybe you're a parent with a wayward child and you have planted the seed and you keep on scattering the seed and through tears you're praying and pleading and nothing seems to be happening. And I would just say, take courage from this parable. The word has been sown. God's gonna do something and you don't have to worry about that because your job has been done. Faithfully sow the word and leave the results to him. Maybe you're evangelizing your neighbor or your coworker, and it seems like nothing's happening, Jesus would say, take encouragement from these verses. It's not in vain. You're not laboring in vain. Let the word of God loose and just watch it work. Do you trust in the power of the message that you're sharing? Notice the trust that this farmer has. He has such certainty, even though he's completely passive in what he's doing, he doesn't bring about the growth. He just throws the seed and has zero activity in bringing about the growth, but he's still certain that the growth is gonna happen. This parable is profoundly encouraging to those who sow the seed and feel like nothing's happening. And so my question to you, if you read this parable and you think, I don't feel encouraged by this, 
I don't feel a sense of encouragement from this passage. Can I just ask, can I suggest maybe that's because you're not sowing the seed? Maybe you don't feel like I've been sowing and sowing and sowing and it seems like nothing's happening. This passage is only encouraging for those people. But if you are sowing the word, if you trust the word to do the work and you humbly and confidently and faithfully sow the seed, take heart. Jesus isn't asking you to have the best plan, to be the smartest person. He says, just trust me and be faithful. Put your hope in the word of God and you will never be disappointed. So you and I can sow with confidence because it is surprising how the kingdom grows. Number two, it is surprising how big the kingdom grows. Back in Mark chapter four, Jesus is going to give us another parable where he's going to say, it is surprising how big the kingdom grows. So not only how the kingdom grows, but how big the kingdom grows. This is verses 30 through 34. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed. It's like a tiny little mustard seed. This is so important because if you were to ask the disciples, what is the kingdom of God going to look like when it shows up? Their expectations and rightfully informed from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9, the government will be on his shoulders and of the increase of his government, there will be no end. So they're thinking this is going to be massive. Isaiah chapter 45, God's going to bring salvation, not just to Israel, but to the Gentile nations as well. This is going to be a massive kingdom. Isaiah chapter 60 says the same thing. This kingdom is going to be huge. And yet Jesus is beginning to build this kingdom with nothing. He doesn't have a house. He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have numbers. He has nothing. And they must be thinking, this isn't going well at all. And what Jesus says in this parable is small beginnings have no indication of where it's going to end. Small beginnings give no indication of where it's going to end. It starts like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it's smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. Mustard seed is the size of a grain of sand. It's the smallest seed that was used in farming at that time. And there are people who will argue there are smaller seeds than the mustard seed. And you can make a case for the jewel orchid having a smaller seed. Totally fine because, number one, this is the smallest seed used in farming at that time. So it was the smallest known seed to Jesus and to the other people that were there. So he's using the seed that they would have known. Number two, it's a proverb. It's a proverbial saying. It'd be like us saying a needle in a haystack. A needle in a a haystack would be hard to find, yes. But I'm sure that a contact contact lens in the ocean would be harder to find, right? But we say a needle in a haystack. Why? I don't know. That's the saying. (laughs) Whoever came up with that, that's it. So Jesus is saying the mustard seed It's the smallest seed that we use for farming that we know proverbially. It's the smallest seed. And yet it grows into the biggest tree. I used to have a mustard seed from Israel taped into my Bible in this section in Mark chapter 4. And I walked around when I lived in Israel. I walked around with a tiny little ESV Bible. I I literally can't even read it now because my eyes are bad. 
It was so small print. I had this tiny little Bible I would stick in my back pocket, and our professor gave us little mustard seeds. It was so hard to even see them in your hand, and you take it, and I put it in a little piece of tape, and I folded the tape, and then I taped it into my Bible. And I don't know when I lost it, but I lost it at some point. And I remember I showed this passage with that piece of tape still in Mark chapter 4. I showed this passage to a friend of mine and I said, look, it's so cool because I have a mustard seed on the passage of the mustard seed. Look. And he looks and he's like, there's no mustard seed there. It was so small. I didn't even know when I had lost it, but it had fallen out at some point and I thought it was still there. That's the reality of what Jesus is saying. You can't even see it right now but you won't be able to stop seeing it later. You can't even see it right now. The kingdom's growing, but you don't even see its growth. God didn't design his kingdom to start like a bolt of lightning, a huge boom, a flash, and then gone. That's not God's kingdom. God's kingdom is slow, steady, and sure growth, starting with 12 men, and now look at where it is. They even got a taste of it. Ultimately, right? The disciples got a taste of the growth of the kingdom. It whittles down to 12, actually whittles down to 11 guys. And then once Jesus ascends into heaven, it just starts growing. You have 3,000 come to faith in Jesus in Acts, and then 2,000 come to faith, and it starts growing and growing exponentially. You have Gentiles coming into a Jewish kingdom, a messianic kingdom for Jews. You have Gentiles coming in, which is a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. That's what Jesus is saying even here in verse 32. When it's sown, it grows up, and it becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. He's quoting Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 23, Ezekiel chapter 31, verse 6, uh, a portion of Daniel 4 where Nebuchadnezzar had seen that dream of the big tree and the birds coming to nest under its shade, Psalm 104, verse 12. He's quoting the Old Testament, which is describing Gentile believers coming into the kingdom. This isn't just for Jews. This is for Gentiles. This is for the whole world because God so loved the whole world that he gave his son to build this kingdom. And even now, the kingdom is growing, whether you see it or not. So if I can give you one more exhortation, trust the work of the word, humbly and confidently with faithfulness, share the word, sow the word. Number three, rest assured in the growth of the kingdom. This parable would tell us, rest assured in the growth of the kingdom. Third exhortation from these parables, rest assured in the growth of the kingdom. Where does your assurance of the growth of God's kingdom come from? Where do your hopes come from? Where do your fears come from? I think if we're honest, especially in America right now, in Western modern evangelicalism, I think if you're honest, the loudest voices would say that our hope for the growth of the kingdom is tied to the next election. Brothers and sisters, that's not true. The kingdom's going to grow no matter who's president. The kingdom's going to grow no matter what happens to you and to me. The kingdom is on a collision course with the gates of hell. And nothing's going to stop it. Maybe you're worried about the stock market. and You think, well, if we can't have a good economy and something happens and we aren't able to have enough money and we aren't able to share the gospel through missionaries around the world? What if we have to pull our support for our missionaries because the economy tanks? Is that going to stop the kingdom from growing? 
No, this is the whole point of the book of Acts, right? How many times you see in the book of Acts, and the word of God increased and multiplied. And usually it's after somebody big is getting imprisoned or killed. Peter imprisoned, Acts chapter 12, the word of God increases. James beheaded, the word of God increases. Just keeps on growing. This makes sense in context because it's not dependent on us. We sow, and if they kill us, they kill us. But the kingdom will grow because we're not the ones making it grow. The growth of the kingdom promised in this text should give us such confidence. It should give us such optimism. It should give us such peace. I don't know if if you've ever taped, we don't do that anymore, DVR. I don't even know if we do that anymore. I don't know if you ever taped a sporting event to watch it later. I don't do this because by the time the sporting event is done, I can look on my phone, see the score, and I go, okay, I know who won. Sometimes, though, I will go back and watch a sporting event. I'm a big fan of, like, ESPN Classic, right? I love watching these old sporting events where I know what's going to happen, and there's this tense moment in the game. And if I was watching it in real time, I'd be sweating, I'd be nervous, I'd be going, I don't know what's going to happen, what's, uh, who's going to win, But knowing the outcome of the game, I actually kind of enjoy those moments. I enjoy watching the tension, watching the struggle and the difficulty because I know what's going to happen. That's exactly what Jesus is having us understand in these verses. We know what's going to happen. The kingdom's going to grow and nothing's stopping it. So when you see something that looks like it might potentially stop it, we can glory in the fact that God's much bigger than that thing. Maybe it's communist China. They wanted to completely obliterate Christianity and stamp it out. And now the underground church in China has grown so big and is flourishing. We look at that on the tape. And in the moment we go, this isn't good for Christianity. And then we look at it knowing this and we go, oh, nothing can stop it. This is how we must view the story of Christianity. We must view the growth of the kingdom. This is how we view it. You might think, yeah, but my evangelism and my discipleship doesn't seem to do anything. Maybe you think, where is the gospel going in America as a whole? We are living in a culture that is ever increasing in hostility towards Christianity. It's a post-Christian culture. It's even an anti-Christian culture. And it can be very easy to think, where is this gospel going? Where is the kingdom going? Where is it going to end? It's not looking good right now. How is it all going to end? Can I show you how it's going to end? Go to Revelation chapter 7. Here's the end of the story. Verse 9, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That's where it's going to end, with a multitude that can't even be numbered of every tribe, tongue, nation, language, and people group. The kingdom of God will not be stopped. 
So in our anti-Christian culture, it can be easy to think, you know what? We need to fight because it's all on us to bring about the kingdom. And this text says no. Or we might think we're all going to be destroyed. The kingdom's going to die and there's nothing we can do because the kingdom will be lost forever. And this text says no. This parable reminds us there's something that we can do, but the growth is not dependent on us. And since it's ultimately dependent on God and he has promised that his kingdom will grow, then there's nothing that can stop that from happening. He's faithful, he's promised it, and it will happen. So Mark chapter 4 This section ends, verse 33, with many such parables he was speaking of the word of them so far as they were able to hear it. So if they're pressing into it, they can understand it, they can ask for more illumination of what's going on and he didn't speak to them without a parable but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So if you want to know the truth, you can press in to the parable. This is what we looked at last Lord's Day. Draw close to Jesus and you'll get more of him. Draw back and you'll lose him and everything that comes with him. You get out of it what you put into it. And if you don't use it, you lose it. That's what we talked about last Lord's Day. But here, with many such parables, he's speaking the word of them so far as they were able to hear. You and I, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you know God's voice. You know his language. You know when he speaks in the word and you're able to receive it, understand it, comprehend it, and live according to it. Others do not. And that's why we need to faithfully sow the word and pray that God would work in their heart. So let us trust God to do his work and let's be faithful to do ours because the day is coming when the kingdom of God will surpass the glory of the mightiest kingdoms on the earth. Trust in the work of the word. If you you trust in the work of the word, then you're going to be excited to scatter it. So humbly and confidently throw it out. And as you do that, you're going to rest assured that the kingdom will grow. It will happen. It will come about because God's promised that it's going to come about. So rest assured in the growth of the kingdom. And since you know the kingdom is coming and God has graciously invited all of us to be a part of that, then we're going to trust the work of the word and we're going to go out and we're going to scatter. We're going to trust, rest assured in the growth of the kingdom. And it's a cycle that keeps on growing. William Carey, uh, born in the late 1700s, father of the modern missionary movement, labored in India for seven years before he saw his first convert. Think of that, seven years. Sharing the gospel, pleading with people to be saved, helping them understand the word, and no one follows Jesus. He shared the gospel for more than 40 years, but the fruit of his labor was minimal. And yet, he would say these words. The future is as bright as the promise of God. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Likewise, Adoniram Judson labored in Burma for seven years before seeing his first convert. Again, preaching the gospel pleading with people to repent, pleading with them to be saved for seven years and no one turns. No one turns in repentance. Nobody trusts in the Lord. He would ultimately die saddened and disappointed that his labors for the gospel yielded such little fruit. He wanted more, right? Just like we sang, we long to see your churches filled. He wanted more. And yet, like William Carey, 
He was faithful to the end, and he said, quote, in spite of sorrow, loss, and pain, our course be onward still. We sow on Burma's barren plain, and we reap on Zion's hill. My friends, God is doing a work in and through our church family, in and through you, I thought about our brothers who have gone before us, about Adoniram Judson, about William Carey. They didn't see a convert for seven years. We have seen so many people get saved, get baptized. Just even the last couple of weeks, uh, two people have gotten saved in our church and they are going to be getting baptized. Like God is doing a work in our church family. God's doing a work in and through you as you are faithfully sharing the gospel. So trust him. Trust him to do the work and know with the Apostle Paul that you can give thanks to God because we know without a shadow of a doubt that our labor is never in vain in him. Father, we thank you so much for these amazing parables. What rich truths to give a balm to weary souls, maybe even just weary from thanksgiving, talking to family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, sharing Christ and feeling like we hit a wall again. God, remind us this morning that that's not our job. Our job isn't to change hearts. Our job is to faithfully sow, to scatter the seed and then to leave the results in your hands. You are good and you do good and we can trust you. You will bring about a harvest that is beyond our wildest imagination. And so we cling to your promises. We cling to Matthew 16 that says the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. And I love that beginning that Jesus, you promised, I will build my church. I will do it. You promised that. We don't have to build it. We couldn't build it even if we wanted to. And we desperately want to, but we can't. So, Father, enable us to trust in the work of the word. Enable us to humbly and confidently, with faithfulness, share the word. Scatter the seed, knowing it's going to do something. And then, Father, enable us, as a church family and individually, to rest assured in the growth of the kingdom. It is shocking how the kingdom grows. Supernaturally, not naturally, not the way that we would have thought. And it's shocking how big the kingdom grows from tiny, humble beginnings. But it really shouldn't be that shocking because even as we meditate on Christmas, you were born as a little baby. Meek, mild, humble beginnings. And you will return one day, Lord of all, in your glory, no longer veiled, so too your kingdom starts humble, meager beginnings. And one day, the glory of your kingdom will cover the face of the earth. So God, build your church, build your kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.